He's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. I'm Matthew Galt, in for Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. It's the end of a long shift, and your friend, fellow co-worker, comes to give you a ride home. You're both behind the counter, no one is in the store, then there's a chime above your head. A voice fills the room. Someone you've never met. They ask who this new person is and why they're behind the counter. Can you please confirm the identity of the person who's standing behind the counter with you? The voice reminds you that employees aren't allowed behind the counter if they aren't on duty. Okay, could you please make sure that they are standing on the opposite side of the counter? All right, thank you. Sorry about that. This is the promise of LiveEye, a CCTV camera system which, for a monthly fee, will monitor a store's security cameras 24-7 and step in if there's trouble, or a slight employee infraction. It sells itself as a safety feature, but as a new report from Motherboard's Todd Feathers shows, it's anything but safe. Todd Feathers is here with the story. Feathers is a motherboard contributor who writes about AI and surveillance. Todd, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so what is LiveEye exactly, and what businesses want it? So LiveEye is a surveillance camera company. It's hard to gauge exactly how large it is, how large its customer base is. It claims on its website that it's used by some you know, huge corporations, including 7-Eleven, Holiday Inn, Shell gas stations, a couple of their convenience store companies. But what's not clear is whether it's been purchased by those corporations and is deployed throughout many, many stores, or whether a lot of those companies which franchise out their operations, you know, if the individual franchisees are the ones who are purchasing the surveillance. And it's a little different than your traditional just CCTV camera company. It has, you know, the fisheye lens camera that you mount on your ceiling. But for about $400 a month, in addition to just that kind of passive surveillance, LiveEye tries to distinguish itself by offering 24-7 monitoring by a live person. And this is done by folks in India, and they watch the CCTV footage of your business And if they see something that they deem suspicious, be it shoplifting or an armed robbery, they will speak into the store over a speaker and say something along the lines of, you know, we're calling the police or employee, please go check on, you know, aisle five. But in addition to just monitoring for for crimes like that, they're also monitoring the employees in the store and can do things like instruct them to perform a particular task or, you know, question whether they're you know, adhering to the policy of the stores on little things like talking to customers in the right place. Right. You've got three videos in the story um, that we really focus on. They're all in convenience stores. And two of them, I mean, they're all frightening to me personally, but the two of them are about employee behavior. They're not about um, catching shoplifters or or anything else you would traditionally think of as, as using CCTV footage for. Can you walk us through um, those first two videos and the interactions we see on those? Yeah, so, so the first video mentioned in the story uh, is of an employee, a, a clerk at a convenience store of some kind. It's hard to tell exactly which company. Um, and he, he walks around the counter, opens up a cooler, takes out a can of what the company says is 
coffee, iced coffee. He sits down for what looks like his break. He drinks it. He throws it away. Then the video cuts. Um, it's not really clear how much later to the clerk, you know, walking back towards the cash register. And there's a, a ding sound. And this, you know, voice from the ceiling comes down. And the, you know, analyst is what Liveye calls them. Asks the employee, you know, whether he scanned and paid for the item before he drank it and after. And, you know, fr frankly, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch because, yes, you know, employees should not ideally be, you know, sampling the product in the store. But I think about how I have worked and how many <laughs> hours I've spent at my jobs not doing exactly what I should be doing at all time. And yet I like to think that I'm still a very productive employee and have been good for my employers and our relationship has always been good. Uh, and it's, you know, even kind of worse in the second video where the clerk at, a, at another convenience store is standing behind the counter and he's talking to somebody who's just off screen. Um, there's a ding and this voice asks, who is that person you're talking to? And the, the two men explain that he's, you know, a, a friend or a relation of some kind and he's here to pick the employee up and give him a ride after his shift, which is just about to end. And the analyst instructs the clerk to make sure that the man is on the other side of the counter which again yeah i'm sure it's in violation of the policies but to be micromanaged in that way by somebody you know across the world who, who doesn't know you has no relationship to you um i find that concerning i think a lot of people who have worked would also yeah it, it strikes me one of the a lot of things strike me about the video especially as someone who worked retail for a very long time the, the voice calls these people cashier, seemingly does not know their names. It's completely depersonalized, right? Part of the bedrock of like a retail business, getting through it as an employee is the developing the relationships with your fellow coworkers. Uh, it helps you get through. And then to just have this strange eye in the sky that can ping in, call you by your work role and can order you around is uh, not not going to have a good effect on people's mental health. I think. Can you talk about some of that? Because there's, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of this in schools, right, um, with the technology that was developed to monitor kids while they were in front of their laptops. But there's been a, kind of this explosion of workplace surveillance. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's hard to get an exact number or metric for how much you know workplace surveillance has increased during the pandemic. You know, these are private companies. There's no one database that, that tracks everything, but there has undeniably been an increase. And we're just seeing an increase in the kind of products and, you know, for lack of a better word, the creativity that some companies are, are displaying in, in new ways to surveil employees. Yeah, I, I was just looking before we, we got on at a, a couple of recent examples. And, you know, I think one thing that's important to remember in this is that a lot of times these kinds of surveillance tools are presented as you know, ways to keep employees safe and, you know, they're for security. And during the pandemic, that manifested a lot as, you know, cameras that monitor for social distancing, to enforce social distancing. Amazon released this product called Panorama, and the Financial Times had a great story on this, you know, saying that it was marketed to, you know, enforce social distancing, but they had testimonials from companies like Fender, the guitar maker, saying, this is a quote, we can track how long it takes for an associate to complete each task in the assembly of a guitar so that we're able to optimize efficiency and track key metrics. So it's not really about safety. It's about, you know, enforcing a certain idea of what work and productivity is. 
but it actually has a really bad effect on employees. There, there have been numerous studies that have documented this. One from you know, a couple of Harvard professors, and they wrote about it in the Harvard Business Review, looked at TSA agents right after the TSA installed CCTV cameras to you know, tr- kind of crack down on baggage that was going missing. And they found, you know, in interviewing these officers that, you know, that it just made them miserable. And even though they were being, you know, seen more by the cameras, they felt like they were being seen even less as employees. And they were only ever noticed or acknowledged when they did something wrong. Um, you know, the the report says that they make a mistake like their ID badge isn't facing the wrong way and they get in trouble for that. But they could be performing their job well and nobody cares about that. This is one of those areas where there's a lot of empirical evidence, you know, talking to employees and workers who've been subjected to this kind of surveillance that this is not good for their mental health. But it's also something that just kind of comes naturally to all of us when we think about it. None of us really want to be surveilled at work to this extent. And it's falling disproportionately on low income workers. Yeah, something that's you, you talked to a couple people for this story. One of them it was an anonymous consultant for the convenience store chain 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, they called it a solution in search of a problem. Yes. So this person uh, is a former what's called a field consultant. Essentially, they, they managed and oversaw a, a number of stores in a geographic area. So they were very familiar with the operations of those stores and, and talked to uh, you know, the, the franchise owners of those stores. And what they said is that a lot of owners, when they come in, care a lot about things like shoplifting and employee theft, because this is your business, you want to protect it. And, and that seems like a threat. But then when you break it down and look at the numbers, you know, it really doesn't cost the stores that much in the long run. And, and sure, it's not great, but is it worth subjecting your employees to this level of surveillance? That This field consultant said that he talked to his franchise owners and said, if you spend as much time focusing on maintaining a clean store and good customer interactions, you're going to see more benefit than you will paying $400 a month to watch everything that your employees and customers do. It's really funny you say that. Um, is again, watching the first video where the clerk is chided for uh, not paying for his coffee immediately, the cashier or the 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 eye in the sky live eye forces him to scan it and pay for it. And while he is doing that, he is ignoring a customer who has come up to the counter and is trying to pay. Um, you know, that problem needed to be fixed right then uh, in a way that, that put a customer out. And when you're in a convenience store, you just want to get out of there. Right. Yeah. And, and you, at least I, as a customer don't want to watch the person across the counter being shamed by you know, a disembodied voice either. That that would be a turnoff, and I don't think I would go back to that store. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a customer and be in there when this voice comes over the loudspeaker, you know, busts into the Muzak and chides somebody over something. But all of that stuff pales in comparison to what we've avoided talking about so far, which is the third <laughs> video. Yeah. Where... The the idea that these are about safety, I think, is completely that that idea is completely destroyed. Can you tell us what happens in that third video? Yeah. So the video starts and you just see a a clerk at another convenience store standing there, and then the door opens and two it appears to be men who are just all in black have their hoods up rush in and, and one of them is carrying an assault rifle and pointing it at the employee. And they, they force him behind the counter and he starts to, 
you know, kind of fumble at the cashier, you presume to kind of open it up and give them the money. These men are, are, are yelling at him and threatening him the whole time. And then you hear this live eye surveillance ding, and this voice comes over the speaker and says something to the effect of, you know, we're watching you, the police have been called and are on their way. And the two robbers run out of the store immediately. And so it looks like Live Eye worked as intended in that situation. You know, it prevented this store from being robbed. This employee wasn't harmed. But one of the points that the, the field consultant we, we mentioned before raised, which I think is the most dangerous thing about this kind of surveillance, is that you don't want to startle an armed robber, especially one you know, carrying an assault rifle that's pointed at your employee. You have no idea what they're going to do, how desperate they are, and, and if they're going to shoot somebody because they hear that the cops are on the way. And he said that, you know, this would go against 7-Eleven policy and that there's a reason that, you know, banks and other businesses have silent alarms. It's because you, you want to avoid exactly what this was. And another layer to that is that there appears to be some kind of delay between when an employee speaks to the live eye, you know, analyst, when they respond. And so that raises all sorts of other questions about, are they actually seeing what's happening in real time? Are they saying the right thing at the right moment? Not that they should be saying anything at all, but there are a lot of ways that something like that could go wrong. Or reveal a little bit of something about myself. So one of the last retail jobs I had uh, was in loss prevention, which means I was the guy watching the cameras. I was the guy that was handling these situations. Um, and watching this footage horrified me um, for all the reasons you just said. But then in the immediate aftermath of when the, the guys leave, the convenience store, the live eye operator continues to uh, direct the cashier and basically tells the cashier all of the wrong things to do. Um, he says, hey, can you go outside and go see if you can figure out what their license plate is? No. These two gentlemen have just left with uh, with with weapons that you know you have no idea if they're loaded or if they're willing to use them. You do not pursue them. And then he he tells him to call nine one one, and then immediately starts telling him to to lock the doors instead, giving the guy so many different commands. And the poor cashier has just had guns pulled on him, and now is receiving contradictory information from a disembodied voice. It it is a recipe for disaster at some point. It is not worth whatever's in the register. It's just it's simply not. Uh, so okay, you, you reached out to Seven Eleven Live Eye. Did anyone get back to you? Seven Eleven did get back, but they didn't answer any questions. They they sent us a you know, pretty boilerplate statement saying 7-Eleven cares about the safety of its employees. 7-Eleven installs security systems in all of its stores, but franchise owners are allowed to install additional security on top of that, which is actually an interesting point because these employees are already being monitored by the corporation. In some cases, you know, they're being monitored by the franchise owner who has, you know, a, a not live eye surveillance system and is watching the store, you know, him or herself. At, at any given time. And then you add this other layer where somebody that you, you don't know will probably never meet is watching you. It's just, it's a lot. And if one of these systems isn't good enough on its own, it's hard to see how you know, multiple of them would be better. So do we know these three videos that you've got, they are hosted on LiveEye's website, correct? Are they, 
are these being used in marketing material? How exactly did you come across these? Yeah, so Motherboard was sent a sales email, essentially, um, from a, a source who had requested information about LiveEye. Um, and, and LiveEye sends back an email detailing the price of the cameras, the, the monthly price of the service. And then, you know, I think it was a dozen, maybe even two dozen of these sample videos um, showing the different scenarios that it's designed for. And it's, you know, as we've talked about, employee theft, uh, shoplifting, robbery, um, but also you're just giving instructions to employees. I'm curious, was there anything interesting in those uh, those videos that didn't make it into the print story? They're all interesting in their own kind of sad ways, but it's really just the same thing over and over. You know, there's a shoplifter in the store, they get caught. Okay, but you know, what what is the cost of that for everybody else in the store and the employees who are there? There is an employee who, you know, doesn't scan something correctly. You know, they get caught. It's not really about these videos. I think that's the important thing to remember is that these are marketing videos that, you know, Wi-Fi has selected. You don't see all the other footage. They're definitely not sending potential customers instances where this kind of surveillance went wrong. And so what's not there, I would say, is, is the most important thing to keep in mind. Todd Feathers, contributor at Motherboard. Thank you so much for coming on to Cyber Today and walking us through this. Hey, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of the show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello everyone, I'm Lorenzo Franceschi Bicchierai, and this is Cypher, the part of Cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. Today, I'm joined by Motherboard's editor-in-chief, Jason Kebler, and I'm filling in for Ben, who I believe is at the beach or something like that. He always is. Lorenzo, that was a, it's a tongue twister. Yeah, Cypher, Cyber, Cypher, Cyber, Decipher, yeah, it's like a, it's a vocal exercise. Yeah, yeah, we like to keep it interesting around here. So yeah, Jason, thank you for being with us. Today we're talking about uh, three great stories. The first one is by Joseph Cox, and it's titled Inside the Market for Cookies That Let's Hackers Pretend to Be You. Then we're going to talk about a classic uh, Lauren Gurley story, whose title is A Homeless Amazon Warehouse Worker in New York City Tells Her Story. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, my story, which was... Bombshell report finds phone network encryption was deliberately weakened. So let's start with Joseph's story, uh, which is about, a, it's like a deep dive follow-up 
after the news of the Electronic Arts EA data breach. Uh, Joseph was able to find out how that happened and uh, a mysterious dark web market where hackers can buy cookies. Yeah, this story is very, very interesting. And I think that six months or a year from now, we're going to look back at this hack and say, wow, that was like the first of many because this is a new kind of new vector, I think, for, for hacking that, uh, I don't know, it just strikes me as, as something that's going to happen over and over and over again. So it's about a company called Genesis Market, which, as you mentioned, is, uh, I believe it's dark web or it might just be invite only on the clear web. Uh, but it's basically a place where hackers can buy cookies. And cookies, as we know, are used for a lot of different things. Cookies are things that when you go to a website, they can sort of track your behavior on a single website. They can track your behavior across multiple websites. Uh, They can be used for advertising, uh, but they can also be used for logins. So when you log into a website and you click remember me and you go back to that website the next day or the next week and you don't have to log in again, that's because of a cookie. So a cookie is a very small file that basically says, hey, I am Jason, or I am Lorenzo, and I'm on this website, it's me, uh, and I'm logged in. However, uh, in this case, what happened was hackers were basically able to acquire cookies uh, from this website called Genesis. And in this case, they were able to acquire cookies that basically said that they were an EA employee. And so they were able to basically browse the internet while wearing what Joseph calls or one cybersecurity expert calls a mask, which is basically like once you're using this cookie, you can pretend to be that person on the internet. So you can log into essentially any of their accounts. And in this case, they were able to log into, I believe it was possibly their Okta account, which Okta is a single sign-on service Mm -hmm. that uh, allows you to log into many different services with just a single email address and password. Um, A lot of different companies use it. Uh, Or they were able to just log on to their Slack. And once they were on the EA Slack, which EA is a massive video game publisher that uh, makes a lot of really big games, but is also kind of hated by a lot of gamers because of things like microtransactions and um, like slow to update games and just like, I don't know, EA's kind of like has a cult following, but also a cult hating of people. Ha- cult cult hating. Yeah. Cult haters too. So I, I don't know if that was like what motivated this specific hacker, but in this case they were able to get into EA Slack and then they were able to trick, uh, an IT worker there into getting further login credentials by saying that they had lost their cell phone at a party or uh, something during party, COVID, yeah. by the way. So yeah, good job. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the weakest link is always the human, right? But, but in this case, it's like they were basically able to buy this login cookie for $10 off of this site called Genesis. And we talked to, you know, the hackers who use this and it's like, we did EA this time, but we can get you know, we can get cookies that say we're already logged into various services for a lot of different companies. And I don't know, Lorenzo, you you probably know more about uh, this than I do, but uh, I would suspect that there's not that much that a company can do to prevent this from happening. 
Yeah, I mean, this sounds very bad. And honestly, I, I didn't know about this website. And I think we nobody here knew about it. And yeah, as you say, it could be, you know, it could be the genesis of a lot of data breaches. And um, yeah, I don't know if a company can do anything. I guess, uh, you know, it's really hard for a company to defend against all kinds of data breaches, especially companies as big as e Electronic Arts or EA. You know, are you, are you gonna? What are you gonna do? Like monitor everyone at all times to see if someone is still in their cookies? It's hard, and uh, it's interesting to see that the website has so many big companies. Like they list uh, Facebook cookies for Facebook, Spotify, Reddit, Pinterest, Apple, Netflix. You know, GitHub. You name it. So yeah, we'll see. As we saw in this case, sometimes the cookie itself is not enough. You know, the hackers here needed had to social engineer somebody else. But, you know, it's a great start. And uh, for $10, it's a yeah, good deal. And, and so, I mean, the cookies are stolen by, uh, I mean, essentially like malware is used to extract the cookies from a, a person's computer. Is that right? Like that that's what it seems to be. Although, I mean, I guess there are multiple different ways that a, a cookie could be obtained. Yeah, presumably you got someone to install malware and the malware steals the cookies or maybe you fish them. But at that point, I guess you can just get the password. Password. So yeah, presumably they planted some malware on the computer, which you know it's not always easy, and it depends how good you are as a hacker. Right, but it seems like I mean, based on our reporting, there's four hundred thousand listings on this website, which is astounding, uh, and it seems like maybe these were sort of stolen in bulk yeah. at once from, from like a bigger hack at some point. And we're not sure what hack that may have been, but that, that seems to be what has happened here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. could be that. And, you know, sometimes some of these listings may be expired or the cookies are expired, or maybe it's that some of them are scams. So, you know, perhaps it's not really 400,000, uh, good cookies, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to, um, you know, a topic that Lauren and Edward have, have covered really well, you know, the problems with um, gig workers. And this is just a harrowing story from an Amazon warehouse worker in New York City who cannot afford to have a house and so lives in her car in the parking lot of the Amazon warehouse where she works. Yeah, this is a story about uh, Natalie Monares. Uh, who is a worker at JFK 8, which is in Staten Island, is the only Amazon warehouse in New York City, like the only major warehouse. There's some smaller delivery hubs and things like this, but this is just like a gigantic story. It was also the subject of a New York Times expose last week. Um, it's also been the subject of a lot of motherboard stories. Like they are workers who are organizing there now. Uh, we also had a few stories about how they handled COVID early on, but basically it's like if you are ordering Amazon, anything off of Amazon in New York city or nearby, it's likely going through this warehouse. There's thousands, 5,000 workers there. So that's, it's just like a very massive facility. And this worker, Natalie, uh, has worked there for a few years and she's basically, she's making, I believe 19, 19, yeah, $19 yeah. an hour. So she's making $19 an hour, which is obviously above minimum wage. At the same time, the housing market in New York city is crazy. It's very, very expensive to live here. And she's in her fifties. And basically her story is like, I could potentially find 
somewhere to live in New York City, but I would have to live with a lot of roommates or I would have to live in a place where I don't feel safe because, um, you know, a lot of, according to her, a lot of the uh, apartments she was able to find on Craigslist were like single men who were looking for a woman to like move in with them for like sex reasons, like, Hmm. which I've, I've been on Craigslist. That's what a lot of Craigslist is like. Um, and so she's decided, I mean, decided is maybe the wrong word, but, but she believes at the moment that her best option is to live out of her car. And so, you know, it's a 24 seven facility that has lights and security. She feels it's like a, a relatively safe place to live at the same time, it's like this is a person who's working full time in America um, and is unable to pay for housing. And so it's a story not just about Amazon, which, uh, you know, $19 an hour is more than the minimum wage in New York City, but it's also far below what a lot of other warehouse jobs pay. Um, so it's a story about both like the cost of living in America and the cost of uh, sort of Amazon's labor practices. Um, it's a really good story. You should read it. Uh, I highly doubt that Natalie is the only person uh, who is in this situation. Um, I think, you know, the specifics of her case are, are pretty pretty ordinary in terms of like she has some credit card debt. She has to pay for health insurance. She has to pay for a car lease and, a, and uh, car insurance and a cell phone bill. And it's like, you know, you start taking those monthly bills off, uh, off of your paycheck and, and suddenly there's not enough money to pay the rent. Yeah. I bet this is not the only person and it's, it's really a depressing read, but very important to show, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about minimum wage with Amazon and putting faces to this kind of stories always helps to see, you know, what actually happens out there. And just to put some, you know, final thing, just to put things in perspective, her salary is basically around $37,000 a year, which, you know, in New York is really, really hard to get by with that. Yeah. And I mean, it should be said, I mean, very brave of her to to speak out with her name and her face. I think it's, um, I think it's a really brave and powerful thing that she did. And it's a story worth reading. Yeah. And hopefully something good comes out of this. We'll see. And yeah, for the last story, I guess we can switch seats as this is a story that I wrote and uh, it was about a new research paper that came out last week. Lorenzo, I love this story. It's really uh, nerdy. Um, It's really nerdy, but it's also uh, really important. It's so basically um, an encryption standard that was used on 2G cell phone data for much of the 90s was found to be Basically, I mean, it was really weak. Like the the encryption was was really weak, and this these researchers learned that it wasn't an accident. Correct? Yeah, there's a few interesting things here. We're talking about, as you said, uh, an encryption standard that was used in the late '90s and for much of the 2000s, and this was the first, uh, I believe, the first encryption that. Uh, algorithm that allowed for internet connections uh, over cell phones. So we're talking about the days of the Nokias and Motorola's um, when you could 
for the first time connect to the internet. And the encryption standard was called GEA1. There was also GEA2. The researchers studied both, and they found that in particular GEA1 uh, was essentially so weak that with a even a, a supercomputer at the time, so something that was possible at the time, you could um, decrypt it and uh, intercept the traffic. And their guess, um, and essentially their analysis shows that this could not have been made by mistake, that the weakness could not have been there because of a mistake. And interestingly, the, the organization that was responsible for the algorithm, uh, which is called Etsy, a standard organization, uh, admitted not, that, not the Etsy. <laughs> yeah, it's the European Telecommunications Standards Institute uh, admitted that this was the case. They said that, yes, uh, we had to weaken uh, this algorithm because of um, ex- expert controls. And basically, they said there was nothing for us to do. And uh, But, you know, this is fascinating that we only learned this for sure, you know, 20 years later. Uh, I think that you know there were rumors that this algorithm wasn't wasn't secure for years, but this was sort of this is like the you know this is the evidence and, and admission. And the other thing that's kind of concerning is that well you know you may be listening to this or you may have read the story and say well you know who cares it's 2021 we have moved on. Well, we haven't because in a lot of places. Uh, these algorithms are still there, out there because your cell phone is programmed to fall back to GPRS or 2G if uh, you know 4G or LTE or 3G are not available. And that means that, yeah, it's possible that you know at some point your phone will revert back to this algorithm and someone could sniff your traffic or intercept your messages or see what websites you're browsing. Yeah, so the thing that is most interesting to me about this is, well, first of all, this encryption standard, as you mentioned, is still sometimes used today, but for the most part was important in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it, it, like no one seemingly caught this for a really long time. And the way that they caught it was they essentially like did math to it, um, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term. It's like they tried to... um, design a similar algorithm that had a similar weakness and they ran a simulation like millions of times and they're like we could not introduce this particular bug by chance no matter how hard we tried which is i think just like a very interesting methodology to do something like this Um, and then as you said it seems like it was something to do with export controls and you know different cryptographers have called this potentially a backdoor um, I know that we didn't really go as far as calling it that because, um, you know, it was like a regulation and it, it's unclear whether the the encryption was weakened specifically for spying or if it was just like they kind of didn't know what they were doing um, because the, the export controls have since been changed. But I do think that even though this happened in the 90s and 2000s, like it's very relevant to the ongoing conversation about going dark and about sort of like, well, should we weaken encryption for the FBI or for the Mm -hmm. NSA or provide some sort of token or some sort of um, master key, maybe master key for trusted entities. And it's like, you can't do that. It's, it's yet another example of why you can't do that because anytime you design any sort of weakness into encryption, it weakens it for anyone. Yeah. It's also a great example of, 
you know, the fact that even decisions that uh, organizations make more than 20 years ago can still have repercussions uh, decades later. You know, it's uh, that's those are the challenges when, you know, when we move to 5G and uh, we decide on new technologies, you know, it's really hard to predict um, how, they're gonna, how everything is going to unfold and whether they're going to be used for longer than you plan. Well, I mean, it's it's for another podcast, but it's it to me it's similar to like SS7 in that SS7 is another protocol that is used for cell networks and for data over cell networks, I believe, or maybe it's voice. I'm not sure. I just forget off the top of my head. But basically, it's like there are weaknesses in SS7, and they cannot be easily patched. And it's something that is deployed worldwide and we know that there are attacks against ss7 so it's like yeah the the policy decisions of now and the technology that we're rolling out now can and will have repercussions for years and possibly decades to come Mm -hmm. yeah and it's just another reminder that cell phone you know communications over cell phone are not always as secure as we would like them to be yeah Well, thanks for joining us, Jason. This was fun. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Lorenzo. Yeah, we'll talk to you or Ben will talk to you next week or I will talk to Ben. We'll see. But stay tuned because Cyber will be back. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.